back in 2005, Christian Smith and Melina Denton published a book that sought to summarize their extensive research regarding the belief system of most teenagers at that time. <clears throat> the book was titled, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And based on extensive research, they identified a predominant belief in most American teenagers, even, some of those, even among those who claim to be Christians. They named the core belief moralistic therapeutic deism. And in moralistic therapeutic deism, there are five core beliefs that they identified. <clears throat> Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. The term moralistic and moralistic therapeutic deism describes the value and belief of being good. And of course, this value of, or belief of being good as defined by the culture and not just the Bible. But this mindset or way of thinking has pervaded not just teenagers, but a lot of those in the West. If you ever ask people where they would spend eternity, you probably have gotten an answer something like this. Well, I'd, I'd go to heaven. And if you press them on why, they might say something like this. Well, I'm a good person. I do good things. I, I try to live a good moral life. And of course, if we're not careful, we as a church can fall into this mode of thinking as we swim in the waters of our culture and are not unaffected by it. It can come up in subtle ways, such as uh, not drawing near with confidence to the throne of grace because of our great high priest, so that we may receive grace and help for a time of need, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us. But we can subtly build our confidence on our ability to approach God because of what we have done. Typically, it comes out something like this. I can approach God when I've done good today when I've read my Bible, when I've prayed. But when I haven't prayed, or when I haven't read my Bible today, haven't done my quiet time, then I'm less confident in being able to approach the Lord. This can also show up in more overt ways as well, such as uh, starting to build a life where you focus less and less on honoring the Lord, and you're motivated less and less by the gospel, and instead, you build a life that is more or less on just being a good person and seeking the approval of men. In all of these approaches to living and spirituality, there's at least one main foundation that is missing, Christ. All of these approaches, and of course this is just one example, a series of examples of this, but all of these are void of Christ. In our study of Colossians, we've seen in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul beautifully described the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. By him, all things were created. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. That was chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Paul makes a turn to appeal to them to not forsake the sufficiency of Christ. Perhaps the key verse in chapter 2 is verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive 
through philosophy and empty deception, according to the principles, sorry, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And indeed, they had been taken captive. They had begun to forsake a Christ-centered approach to living and instead had begun to pursue ways of living that were void of Christ. Worshiping angels, going back to Old Testament Jewish law, obsessing over heavenly visions from those who have no connection with heaven. And then in chapter 3, Paul again begins to make a turn as we will see tonight. After building his case against these Christless approaches to living, Paul then shows them what Christ-centered living looks like. What does it look like to place Christ at the very center of all that you do and think? In other words, what does it mean to be Christian? And so in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, gives us four anchors for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. Four anchors for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. Just as a ship anchored at sea and the anchor is fighting against the tide to stay in the current position that it is, so this church, Paul is exhorting them to resist the tide of folk religion and to instead be anchored to Christ and to reject this false teaching. Four anchors for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. Four anchors for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. The first anchor for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from this is this. Consider your connection with Christ. Consider your connection with Christ. That is the first part of verse 1. Take a look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... At the tail end of Paul's argument for not turning uh, to anything other than Christ, we have this first word here in verse 1 as therefore, referring back to chapter 2. So take a look at chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. I'll go ahead and read these. Uh, So just take a look at chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 with me. If you have died with Christ, the elemental principles of this world, why? As if you were living in the world... Do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the, and, and, and pay attention to how he describes this. What, what, what are they living for? The commandments and teachings of men. Not God, but men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, and, and notice this, description, self-made religion, not religion that's designed by God, but self-made religion, and self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Essentially, Paul's argument is this, why are you going back to that which you have died to? Why would you go back to that which you have died to? And not only that, Not only is what you're going to dead, but you are dead to it. It no longer has a hold on you. This worldly system that the world lives in, you're no longer a part of. And so why are you tempted to go back to that which you have died to? It's dead religion, and you yourself have died to the world. 
what the church at Colossae was captivated by was not a supreme and sufficient view of Christ, but instead things such as asceticism, the worship of angels, heavenly visions. What Paul reminds them of is what they are tempted to move towards has actually lost connection with the head, which is Christ himself. Though it's convincing, it's nothing other than empty deceit. It's vain philosophy. Though it has an appearance of wisdom, it's nothing more than the tradition of men. In other words, it's dead religion. And so in chapter 3, Paul begins by referring back to this argument. Therefore, therefore, that is, having now established that the religion that these false teachers are putting before you is false and dead, therefore, what? Look at verse 1 with me again. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. This is a profound spiritual reality that the Apostle Paul is describing here. Notice the tense of this phrase. It's not if you will be raised up with Christ, but if you have been raised up with Christ. The phrase raised up with Christ indicates a present reality that has occurred in the past and is ongoing. The word that Paul uses for raised up with is very unique. It occurs only three times in the entire New Testament. Two of them are in Colossians. So take a look with me at chapter 2, verse 12, where we have our word again. Chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him, and there's our word again, raised up with him, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in what way have we already been raised up with Christ? In the same way that we join Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as symbolized at baptism. This is profound. The word carries the idea of being co-resurrected with. At the moment of your conversion, you spiritually entered into Christ's death and resurrection and now have been made alive in Christ. No longer dead, no longer blind to spiritual realities, but able to see and comprehend spiritual truth. Listen, there was a period of your time before your conversion when you were dead spiritually. You looked at spiritual realities in your life and you could not perceive what was true. But then God made you alive. God opened up your eyes to see that which you could not previously see. And that is present tense. That is, from the moment of your conversion until now and ongoing, you have been made alive in Christ. There was a period of time when you looked at your Bible and they were just words on a page to you. But then God opened your eyes. And this was not just words on a page to you, this was spiritual food. This was what you needed and you saw that for the first time at the moment of your conversion. Considering your connection to Christ provides an anchor to steady your soul against these false teachers. Listen, all of these false teachers are promising you, Church of Colossae, you already have in Christ. You already have it. You already have this connection in Christ. You already have access to the heavenly realms. And so why would you go anywhere else? That's the first anchor for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. Consider your connection with Christ. 
There's a second anchor for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. Have a heavenly mindset. Have a heavenly mindset. We find this in the second half of verse 1 and in verse 2. Now, instead of pursuing things that falsely promise heavenly access, in the second half of verse 1 and in verse 2, we have Paul laying out what actually possessing true heavenly access looks like. If you're going to reject that which is void of Christ, and if you're going to be confident in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, you must then develop a mindset that is truly heavenward. You must have a heavenly mindset that is based on true spirituality. Look at the second half of verse one with me. Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The tense of this verb to seek implies continual action. Keep seeking, continue to seek, not just a one-time event. Matthew six, chapter six, verse 33, Jesus commands, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In John chapter five, verse 44, Jesus states, how can you believe? when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. What's unique here in this text is that they're not seeking with an aim to obtain something because what they are seeking, they already have. Paul's not commanding them, in other words, to seek to obtain heavenly realities that they already have because of their connection to Christ. But as one commentator states, We are to make that heavenly status the guidepost for all of our thinking and acting. This heavenly status should become the guidepost for all of our thinking and living. Our heavenly status should affect all that we do and think. It is the kind of continual seeking that Paul is after here. And notice the next phrase, the things above. This is a broad statement. In fact, it occurs only here and in verse 2 in the entire New Testament taught a no. The phrase things above, though, we do not need to wonder uh, the meaning of because the next phrase gives us a pretty good clue. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So what is above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, but the heavenly abode where God is? And if we are connected to Christ, then we truly have access to that which is heavenly. There's a contrast being drawn here between uh, this and in chapter 2 and this false spirituality that this church was tempted to move towards. You want true access to heavenly realities? Seek the things above where Christ is. I think of the Catholic Church that prays to Mary seeking spiritual favor by praying to Mary and all in a way that is void of Christ that does not see Christ as sufficient, that does not see Christ as supreme. And similarly here, this church was in danger of seeking to strive to obtain heavenly things apart from Christ, which is no spirituality at all. Now it's not as if they're supposed to pursue heavenly things in some kind of nebulous, ambiguous way. No, look at the next phrase with me, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is a particular place. This is a particular person. There is not ambiguity here. How significant is it to be seated at the right hand of God? What does that mean? Well, Psalm 110 describes the one who sits at God's right hand as a position of power and victory. Psalm 110 verse 1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the same Jesus who Paul describes in Philippians 2 as one where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no higher authority in the heavens than this. There is no one who has closer access to heavenly realities than this. So Church of Colossae, what are you doing? You're tempted to forsake the head, which is Christ himself, which is where all spiritual vigor and true life comes from. Seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This focused as Christ as superior to all other pursuits and aims is so critical for the Apostle Paul, he almost repeats himself, except he doesn't. But these are certainly parallel commands. Look at verse two with me. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. This command is similar to verse one, except Paul gets a bit more specific. The phrase things above is repeated, and yet this time, instead of exhorting believers to seek the things that are above, they're exhorted to set their minds on things above. The verb set your minds is defined in one Greek dictionary the following way. To develop an attitude based on careful thought, to be minded or disposed to. This is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite verbs in the New Testament. Phroneo. Paul loves this word. So as you can imagine, there's all kinds of cross-references here that I could get into, but we'll just look at one. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So what you set your mind to is what you live by. If you set your minds according to the flesh, you will live by the flesh. If you set your minds according to the Spirit, then you will live by the Spirit. This is a mindset or a disposition, sometimes translated as an attitude, that orients all of life around what is being centered on. One of the things that's so unique to Christianity is how much spirituality is actually bound up in the life of the mind and not the emotions. So much of what's out there in the world is propped up, that's propped up as spiritual is more or less emotionalism. So much spirituality is trying to subvert the mind. It's trying to get around the mind. It's trying to empty the mind. It's trying to somehow get around the mind and get these climactic emotional experiences that transcend human thought. The more emotion, the more spiritual you are. And yet God is greatly concerned with the life of the mind. Christianity is the very opposite of anti-intellectual. So let me ask you, how is your thought life? How are you thinking throughout the day on the things that are heavenly, things that are eternal, things that are related to Christ? Do you cultivate an eternal mindset? Do you discipline yourself in the area of your life, of your thought life, and take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ? Or do you let the surrounding culture shape the way you think and live? How much are you aware of unbiblical thinking that goes on in your mind? Can you identify it as it comes into your mind? Nah, that's unbiblical. That's against Christ. And how much do you seek to fight against that? 
rather than letting it linger. Because contrary to what the world tells us, the life of the mind and filling it with truth is so critical for a vibrant spiritual life. We're not about emptying the mind. We're not about trying to subvert the mind. We're not about trying to ride the tide of emotional waves. No, we want to fill the mind with truth. We want to fill the mind with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, will lead to true spiritual life and vigor. Paul then details out what we are not to set our minds on in the second half of this verse. Not on the things that are on earth. Now this likely would have stung a bit to the church of Colossae. This was a very spiritual church. They had these visionaries or false apostles who would give them direct heavenly visions. They had the worship of angels at this church. This was a church who thought a lot about how to obtain spiritual and heavenly experiences. And yet the Apostle Paul calls their approach to spirituality not heavenly, but earthly. Man-made religion has no connection to that which is heavenly. It is dead. It has lost connection with the head. And so if we want to pursue true heavenly realities, they must recognize that it is only found in Christ. That is the second anchor for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. Have a heavenly mindset. Have a true heavenly mindset. One that is centered on Christ instead of on anything else. There's a third anchor for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. It's found in verse, the first part of verse 3. Consider your disconnection from the world. Consider your disconnection from the world. Look at the first half of verse 3 with me. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Notice the first word here, for. Everything that Paul just commanded in verse 1 and in verse 2 is grounded in this spiritual reality, as well as the spiritual reality mentioned in verse 1. It is because of our connection to Christ, and it is also because of our disconnection to this world, that both enables us and motivates us to seek true heavenly realities. Notice also the tense of the word. Die. Past tense. Dead. Already happened. Died to what? Well, just what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elemental principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? If you have died to the world, why do you live as if you belonged to the world? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do we so often go back to that which we have died to? Instead of living our lives in connection with Christ and living out a life that is in communion with Christ and a life that is consistent with our Christian faith, we live inconsistent lives, do we not? We live lives where we go back to that which we have died to. And the Apostle Paul is seeking to point out to them, you have died to this. This no longer has a hold on you. This church was tempted to submit to worldly philosophies and approaches to spirituality that were inconsistent with the spirituality that that has already taken place in them. They've already died to this world. They've already died to man-made religion. So why go back to it? This has all kinds of implications for us in our life. The reality is so helpful in fighting against sin, isn't it? 
For instance, if you struggle with looking at porn, you need to know this. Your life, if you are in Christ, and being defined by Christ, you are dead to sexual sin. Listen, if pornography has a hold on your life, it is not because of a spiritual reality that has yet to be conquered. It is because you yourself let it. You have died to sin. You've died to this world. You are dead to sexual sin. So do not let the sin define you. And so it is with any other life-dominating sins that can take a hold on our lives. Any kind of addictive behavior such as alcohol or drugs or any other addictive habitual behavior, the world would have you put a label on yourself that would identify you in such a way that is just not biblical. You are not an alcoholic if you are in Christ. You are dead to this sin. It no longer has a hold on you. And so we need to be careful before assigning ourselves an identity in the Bible that the Bible simply does not give. We need to recognize what the scripture says about who we are in Christ and to let that liberate us. So it is with besetting sins in our life. You are dead to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. If you go to the sin, it is because you're being succumbed to the deception of the flesh. But it does not have any hold on you any longer. And let me ask you this, as our culture becomes more and more aggressively anti-Christian, have you noticed? Our culture has become aggressively more and more anti-Christian. Do you find yourself tightening your grip on the way things used to be? Or do you find yourself looking more heavenward and aspiring to that? Do you let your identity be shaped more by being an American or by being a Christian? Which identity do you place first? Are you an American that happens to also be a Christian? Or are you a Christian that happens to be an American? There's a difference. There's a big difference. Not only have we died to this world and these elemental principles of this world, but our lives are completely secure in God because of our death in Christ. Look at the next part of this verse with me. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your death to this world is such that your life is elsewhere. No longer on this earth, but actually hidden with Christ in God. This life that we have in Christ is hidden, implying that it has not yet been fully revealed, but it is to be revealed later. One commentator writes, the full reality of the life we, they have is hidden for the moment, even to the believers themselves. Even you as a believer cannot see all the spiritual realities that God has already done in you. It is hidden for the time. It was also very likely that the church at Colossae needed to hear this. They were concerned about spiritual security. They were concerned about these evil spiritual forces that existed, and they were wanting to tack on Jesus, most likely, to these other spiritual sources that would gain them access to the heavenly realms. They did not see the sufficiency of Christ. They thought they needed to obtain security elsewhere. They needed to go to heavenly visions. They needed to worship angels. They needed to do all of these things to try to gain security that they have in Christ and Christ alone. And so the Apostle Paul reminds them several times throughout the book 
that their complete protection is in Christ. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. Notably, this is the only time in these four verses where God the Father is directly mentioned. With Christ in God. Just emphasizing again the absolute power, the absolute security that they have as believers. There is no more secure place for your life to be held than with Christ in God. Not only is God all-powerful, but he is committed to our salvation. And his reasons for his commitment lies entirely in himself, in his own character. And friends, that is good news. If it was up to me, I would have messed up my salvation long ago. But if it's entirely dependent on God, if it is based on his character, if it's based on his promises, if it's based on his glory, and that's the reason why God is committed to keeping me in himself, that is good news. That is good security. Friends, God is more committed to seeing your salvation through than you are. His glory is on the line. That is good news. That is security that will keep you steady and that will keep you anchored to Christ. That steadies you to live in Christ-centered ways rather than trying to get back to dead religion. That's the third anchor for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. Consider your disconnection from the world. There's a fourth and final anchor for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith, have your mind fixed on Jesus' return. Have your mind fixed on Jesus' return. Because if you're going to reject a Christless approach to life, you must also reject Christless hopes and embrace the one who is the ultimate hope, which is Jesus' return. Look at verse four with me. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Think this through with me. Not only have you been crucified with Christ, not only does Christ dwell inside you, not only does Christ empower you for Godward living, but Christ is your life. Could the Apostle Paul say it any more complete than that? Any more direct? Your identification with Christ is so bound together with his that your destiny is bound up with his. One commentator states it this way, Christ is the source, center, and goal of the individual and corporate lives of believers. This connection is key because what you live for is what you anticipate. If you live for sports, you're going to anticipate the big game and the big win. If you live for academics, then you anticipate the big exam or the big scholarship, the high marks on the exam. If you live for the approval of man, then you will anticipate the praise of man. If your life is about your career, then you anticipate the big promotion. But when Christ is your life, then what you will anticipate is his glory on full display. And I think this gets closer to what the Apostle Paul intends for this passage. This is true of every believer. This is not something you have to search for and seek out. This is true of every believer. You may not feel this way all the time, but if you are a Christian, then Christ is your life. There was a period of time before you were a Christian when you looked at Jesus according to the flesh. You paid little regard to his glory. You paid little regard for his grace. You paid little regard to his word. You looked at the Bible and you thought, these are just words on a page. You looked at Jesus 
as he's revealed in the Gospels, and you just thought, so what? But then you became a Christian. And what happened? All of a sudden, your eyes were opened to the glories of Christ. He's everything to me. He died for me. And so all of my life now, I'm going to live for him. Christians are the ones who cherish Christ to such a degree that it is true of them that Christ is their life. God has done this in you. Christ is your life. So Paul is merely encouraging the believers here to be thoroughly Christian, to be consistent with what has already happened to them spiritually. Your identification with Christ is not just to a degree that Christ indwells you or empowers you, but to a degree that your life is so inextricably bound up with his that when he is revealed in all of his glory, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Though our connection to Christ is very real, it is in a sense hidden. We live in an already not yet world and time period in, in redemptive history. First John refers to this when he says in First John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And, what it, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So let me ask you, do you look forward to this? Do you yearn and look forward to the day when you see Jesus in all of his splendor and all of his glory? No more sin. No longer having your vision of Christ clouded because of your sin and your frailty of your flesh. Because of what God has done. Notice the already not yet tension of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Already we are children of God, not yet what we will be. When? It's when Jesus returns. Similar in this passage. When Jesus returns, then we will see him as he is, and you will be revealed with him in glory. So because of this, have your mind fixed on Jesus' return. What other hope are you going to anticipate? What else are you going to live your life for? Everything else is vain. So reject a Christless focus and a Christless anticipation to life. Because if you live for sports or academics or the praise of men, you will be disappointed. This is an anchor that steadies our soul and keeps us from drifting away. Have your mind fixed on Jesus' return. And so in this text, we have four anchors for Christ-centered living to avoid drifting away from the faith. Number one, consider your connection with Christ. Number two, have a heavenly mindset. Number three, consider your disconnection from the world. And number four, have your mind fixed on Jesus' return. Four anchors to keep us centered on Christ instead of drifting away from the rising tide of all that is false religion in our culture. Lest we fall into mere moralism, and become a version of moralistic therapeutic deism. I pray that the next number of weeks as we walk through this glorious chapter in chapter three, that our souls become increasingly anchored to the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. That we increasingly begin to, gov- that all that we do as believers increasingly becomes to be, increasingly is governed by the supremacy of Christ. Because it's easy to have an exterior that looks good on the outside. Unbelievers, look, next week, we, next week when we come together and we look at this second part of this uh, verse, the second part of this chapter, the put-offs, the put-ons, l- l- listen, believers, unbelievers can do that. 
Unbelievers can put themselves together morally in such a way that it can impress even the best of us. But it takes a Christian to prize and cherish Jesus above everything else in life. It takes a Christian to prize Christ. To see Jesus as not just a tack on to your life, but as someone who is so precious and so dear to you that all of your life is defined and marked by him. That he is what you anticipate. And that all of your life and spirituality is marked and defined by Christ and your identity and your connection with him. So let us remind each other as a church continually about the gospel. That it is the power of God who saves. That it is Christ alone who redeems. And that our salvation is solely bound up in him. And may our hearts be filled with gratitude and thankfulness as a result. We're going to respond as a congregation in a moment, singing a wonderful hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting. I just want to close by reading a couple of stanzas in this hymn. And as I read, I want you to think upon these lyrics. Think about the glories of Christ that are in these lyrics. Think about the richness that we have in him before we respond and sing and song together. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved. Know what wealth of grace is thine. Know thy certainty of promise and have made it mine. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thou art. And thy love, so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart. Satisfies its deepest longings, meets, supplies its every need, compasseth me around with blessings. Thine is love indeed. May that be true of us, trusting Jesus as we behold him as he is and becoming so satisfied in him that he defines increasingly so all of our life and what we do and why we do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious, holy, heavenly Father, tonight we have taken such a small glimpse at Christ. Lord, we see him, but so imperfectly. We see him dimly, and yet one day we look forward to seeing him face to face. Father, forgive us where we have strayed away from a pursuit of Christ in our hearts and minds and conform our hearts to yours. Let the message of Christ dwell richly among us, Lord. May our attitudes, our mindsets, and our affections increasingly be shaped by Christ and his glory and not by our own. Protect us from mere moralism, Lord, or anything else that would draw us away from a pure devotion to Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.